Be seated. Good morning. Again, let me thank the elders and all of you for the opportunity to be with you here at Midway this morning. We look forward to the lunch together. We look forward to the afternoon service. I look forward uh, already to the uh, Bible study and to this period uh, of, of worship with you and of my opportunity to, to share with you something from God's Word. I uh, appreciate this congregation. You've been supporters of our work uh, in Bangladesh and Nepal for a long time. If you were not able to be here for the report this morning, I hope you do uh, get a chance to look at our monthly reports that we send by email and, and also uh, that you'll have an opportunity to uh, uh, to hear more about the work on other occasions. Uh, Brenda and I have been back in the United States since our last trip uh, to Bangladesh and Nepal since uh, the, about the 22nd of October. And our plans are to return. In fact, we have tickets purchased that will take us back to Dhaka, Bangladesh on, on the uh, 7th of February. So uh, uh, we uh, uh, ask you to remember us in your prayers, not only on our travels, but, uh, uh, but while we're there and in the work that we do. This morning we will be looking at Hebrews chapter 2 at the topic, So Great a Salvation. We've already read those verses together. We may read them again in just a moment. But first, let's catch us up a little bit on this epistle to the Hebrews. There is a uh, liberal professor who is famous for the introduction to his class on this biblical book. Called uh, The title of the, uh, of the class is The Epistle of Paul to the Hebrews. He said that's a good title, except it's not an epistle, it's not written by Paul, and it's not to the Hebrews. Uh, well, I don't agree with him on all those things, but there is some controversy about the author and the audience uh, and the nature of the book. Some have called it a sermon, and it certainly fits the idea of a, of a sermon or a treatise or a, or a tract on the topic of salvation. Uh, and the thesis statement might well be taken from Hebrews chapter 2, we have received a great salvation. If you're familiar with this book at all, you understand that it was written by a devoted Christian who had a history with this congregation or this group of congregations, if it was written to more than one, uh, that probably, in spite of that professor's assertion, probably they were former Jews who had converted to Christianity, had faced persecution, and were becoming discouraged with their life in Christ. They continue to suffer. They have not received the kind of blessings they might have expected. They have not had the early and swift uh, salvation, that is, eternal salvation, the coming uh, in a physical sense of God's kingdom uh, in words in ways that they could understand it. Uh, and they continue to suffer uh, various kinds of persecution, including apparently imprisonment and beatings, though probably not death, uh, up to this point, according to Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, we do understand that any kind of opposition to our faith can get discouraging and tiring and old uh, before very long. And they have endured for probably a few decades, or at least a decade or two, uh, and it's not surprising they are having something of a crisis of faith. And so the Hebrew writer is writing to encourage them to remain faithful in spite of their discouragement, in spite of the things that they have suffered, and the fact that those sufferings might continue for some period of time. He uses an alternate type, or two, two uh, types of, 
of encouragement or of, of, of teaching that alternate. We sometimes call these the carrot and the stick approach. Most of us have not used donkey carts very much, if at all, or, or mule carts, some have. Uh, but uh, we have the visualization uh, uh, in much of our literature and entertainment of a, of a donkey pulling a cart with a stick stretched out over his head and dangling from a cord at the end of that stick is a carrot. Uh, and as the, as the donkey reaches for the carrot that is just out of his reach, he has to take a step. Well, that pulls the cart, and that is a means of encouraging him to pull the cart because he wants what's at the end of his, of his journey. He wants that carrot that he sees in front of him. That is the promise of rewards. There are blessings to those who will live the Christian life. There is reward coming. God is faithful. God loves us, and God has prepared much good for us, as Jesus teaches in John chapter 14 and many other places. But sometimes delayed gratification does not seem to be quite enough for many of us. We, fail, we get to the point where we fail to be thoroughly motivated by that which is coming someday, but we don't know just when. Some have belittled the promise of eternal salvation as the offer of pie in the sky by and by. Uh, and that's a prejudicial term if there ever was one. And yet we understand why people would say the continued repetition of just hang in there, everything's going to be all right sooner or later, uh, can fail to be very exciting to us. So sometimes we need other motivation. And sometimes that other motivation comes in the form of the stick or the whip kept in the cart close to the driver's hand. If the, the donkey loses interest in the carrot, Maybe a smack on the rump will get his attention and cause him to, to move the cart for other purposes. That is, to avoid more smacks, to avoid uh, more lashes of the whip. The Hebrew writer uses both kinds of encouragement or of motivation to his audience. He tells them about the good things promised to us in Christ. He continually describes that the salvation we have in Christ is a great salvation, indeed the greatest of all. He begins in chapter 1 by comparing Jesus, the Son of God, with the ministering spirits whom God has sent to help man from time to time that we know of as angels. He then goes on in chapter 3 to describe the superiority of Jesus as a deliverer and a lawgiver to Moses, the great hero of the Egyptian escape uh, by the people of Israel. Later, he describes Jesus as a far superior high priest to that of Aaron and his descendants. In every way, Jesus and his law and his kingdom are superior to everything that has come before, especially everything that has come before through the Mosaic dispensation. Don't forget what you have. Don't lose the best thing that there is. Thinking longingly of the golden days of the past. Most of us would have to admit that when we long for the way things used to be, we are using very selective memories. And the things that, and the way things used to be in our country rarely include chamber pots under the bed and, and outhouses or long, cold 50 yards behind the house on a rainy night in January. We like to think about the good times, the unlocked front doors because you trusted your neighbors. We don't like to think about hand-cranked automobiles that most of us never had to use. 
He's reminding them of what they have. In the text that we have read and that we're about to read again, he uses both kinds of motivation. And I encourage you to look for the carrot and look for the stick as we once again read Hebrews 2, 1 through 4. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the future, to the things we have heard. By the way, I'm reading from the New King James, slightly different in wording from the reading that we had earlier. Uh, therefore, we must give uh, the, most, the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proves steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. What we have is the greatest of all possible salvations. In fact, if we look at it carefully, study the Bible carefully, we'll realize what we have is the only possible full salvation from sin. God has saved us in the only way He could save us, the only way that sin could be done away with and God's justice and love both be reconciled and preserved. We have the plan. Things that the mind of man could not conceive, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, that the man's eye had never previously beheld, but were known in the mind of the all-wise, all-loving, and all-knowing, and all-powerful God from the time of the creation of the world, from before the time of the creation of the world. We have a great salvation. Why is it so great? Have you thought about the salvation that we have and thought about the details and the way it came about and, and what makes it superior to any other possibility? First of all, it's the only possibility, but beyond that, notice the price that was paid. Verse 2, it says, This word was spoken through angels, it proved steadfast, and every uh, transgression received a just reward. Yet our salvation first began to be spoken by the Lord. Verse 3. Not only was it spoken by the Lord, it was proclaimed by Him in action and deeds as well as in the message of His lips. Jesus came and died on the cross that we could have forgiveness from sins. The price that was paid for our salvation is the greatest conceivable price, the most precious thing that has ever existed on this world or in this material creation. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. I don't have to tell you, that's found in John chapter 3, verse 16. God, the greatest of all beings, loved us, the greatest of all emotions, so that He gave for us the greatest of all gifts, His only begotten Son. God loves you. God loves me. And God gave for our salvation. The only gift that would suffice. The only price that could be paid. I have heard people say, maybe earlier in my years, I might have made the mistake of saying myself, since God is all-powerful and all-wise, He could have saved us any way He chose to. That's a false statement. If you'll think that through, that cannot be true. To say that would suggest that God paid more than He had to. Suppose I went down and bought a quarter-carat diamond ring to propose to my girlfriend, and I paid $50,000 for that ring because I loved her so much. 
Would most people that heard that appreciate how much I love my wife? Or appreciate how gullible a fool I am for paying way too much for a, for a fairly cheap ring? I think you know the answer to that. To suggest that God could have saved us with some other kind of sacrifice, and He paid the ultimate sacrifice only because He wanted to show us how much He loved us, is to belittle the agony on the cross. It is to belittle the pain of God's love as He heard His Son's cries. It is to belittle the amount that He loved us because He could have saved us without such a price. God saved us in the only way that we could be saved. Only the blood of a perfect sacrifice that we could participate in and claim for ourselves could pay off the just demands of the guilt of our sin. If you eat this fruit and the day you eat of it, you will surely die. That's translated in the New Testament in Romans 3.23 with the statement, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then in 6.23, and the wages of sin is death. Death, physically and spiritually, is the cost of our sin. When we sin, we become worthy of death. That is, under condemnation. We would not appreciate a judge who set the murderer of our child free simply because he, didn't, he, he wanted to be gracious and loving. We want justice done. Justice demands to be done. God is just. We say God can do whatever He wants to do. God is all-powerful. That's true, but there's a caveat. God can do everything that is consistent with His nature. Titus chapter 1, verse 2. God who cannot lie. It doesn't say God will not lie. It doesn't say God has not lied. It doesn't say God doesn't want to lie. It is impossible for God, who is defined as truth, to tell a lie. It's not in his nature. He does not, if you'll pardon me the phrase, know how. He knows all things, but he doesn't know how to do that. He cannot contradict his own nature. So he cannot save us from sin simply because he loves us so much. How often have you heard people argue, I know the Bible says the sinners are going to hell, but I believe that if God is a loving God, when it comes right down to it, at the end of all things, on the judgment day, He'll have second thoughts, and He'll say, it's alright, you can all go to heaven. God can't do that. God is just and righteous in all that He does. It means that sin must be, the price of sin, the cost of sin, must be paid. And only through a perfect sacrifice of human death that every human can participate in and claim for his own can that price be paid. That's why we are baptized into his death. That we are raised into newness of life, becoming a new creature created by God, holy and blameless without sin. We have a great salvation because... It has been bought with the greatest of all possible prices. Second, it occasioned the greatest gift. God loves us. God gave this for us. We don't have to earn it. We can't earn it. It's impossible to do anything to do away with our sins without receiving by grace or through grace 
the gift that God gave to us, the receiving through faith, I should say, the gift that God gave to us through His, His grace. You are saved by faith, are you saved? Uh, by grace, are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, lest anyone should boast? It is a gift of God, not of works, but rather we are created by God to do the works that He has prepared for us. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Our, our salvation is not only bought by the greatest price, but it's a price paid for us, not by us. It's God's gift to us. And again, it does signify God's great love. It solves our greatest need. When we start talking about human needs, there are many that we can list. We need jobs. We need meaningful relationships. We need food and clothing and shelter and, and all the physical material things. Most of us can add a lot of other things that we need. The latest kind of iPhone or, or a laptop or iPad or whatever it might be. We often think we've just got to have those things or a new car or a new house. And yet when it comes right down to it, the greatest need that we will ever experience is a need for freedom from our guilt. Salvation from our sin. All have sinned. That's the reality. We are told today that negative preaching just doesn't cut it. And when you tell people they have sinned and that God is going to punish sin, that's negative and people don't want to hear that. Encourage us. Tell us how much God loves us. Tell us how good we are and that everything's going to be all right. I had a good friend that gave a, a definition for negative preaching back in the 1970s that I've always remembered and appreciated. He said it's not negative preaching when you say there is sin and, and people are guilty of sin. It only becomes negative preaching when, I, when, when they say, there is sin in the world, you are a sinner, and you're going to go to hell, and I'm glad of it. That is, there's nothing that you can do about it. That becomes negative. To offer people hope in their time of need is the very definition of gospel preaching. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Paul said that's a faithful statement in his letters to Timothy. Of whom I am chief, he said. He wasn't being negative about himself. He wasn't demeaning himself. He was being realistic. I made great mistakes in my younger years, but God forgave me. Jesus has saved me. And I am grateful and happy because of that gift. Our salvation provides the greatest reward. We've already alluded to John chapter 14, where Jesus invites the apostles to wait for his return for he is going to prepare a place for them, and when he has prepared that place, he will come back, and they will go with him to that place that he has prepared. I don't know what heaven will be like. I know the figurative description of, of Revelations 21 and 22. Uh, I also know it is a place that uh, is of a different dimension and different nature than anything I can imagine, because it is designed for... Uh, immortal bodies, uncorruptible bodies, which would mean that it itself has to be an incorruptible place. That is, not a place that can have moth and rust that corrupt it and thieves that break in and steal, but a place that is totally, eternally secure. Heaven is going to be a wonderful place. Uh, back in the day, our youth used to sing a song like that, Heaven is a wonderful place, and I want to go there. And I hope that's a goal for every one of us. We'll talk more about that at the 1 o'clock hour. But it, it, our, the greatest reward that we can imagine is a life without pain, without suffering, without sorrow, and without end. 
an eternal fellowship with God, our Father, with Jesus Christ, our older brother, and with every faithful person who has believed in God, loved Him, and obeyed Him from the beginning of time. Faithful Abel, whose blood speaks from the ground, and all those who have come after Him will be there to join, uh, to, to join and welcome those who come from a later time. It is indeed something for us to dream about, something for us to, to hope for and to work for. No other Savior can offer that reward. No other salvation can provide it. Ours is a great salvation. That's the character. Remember what you have in Christ that no one else has ever promised or can ever provide. But if that for any reason should fail to encourage us or fail to excite us and motivate us, remember also that there's another side of the story, and that's the stick. That's the warnings. And notice in verse 1, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. There are those who teach that once a person responds with faith to the message of the gospel, that he has received salvation and nothing and nobody can ever take it away from him. That we cannot even choose to be lost after that point. We might cease to be in the right kind of life, the right kind of fellowship, but we are children of God forever and will ultimately be saved regardless. If so, then what in the world is the Hebrew writer talking about? What does Paul mean when he says, I buffet my body daily so that after having preached to others, I myself will not be a castaway? What does it mean when he, when he encourages us to, to, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling? It doesn't mean earn it. He means follow through with it. Continue to stay with it until it's accomplished. That is, until death comes or until Christ returns. We must be always aware of the danger of temptation and the danger that we might drift away. And then if that were not enough, in verse 3, how shall we escape if we should neglect so great a salvation? There is the problem of neglect and there is then the certainty of a greater punishment to those who would neglect salvation in Christ than was given to those who violated the commandments of the law of Moses. Have you read the books of Exodus through Deuteronomy lately? The law of Moses begins to be delivered about chapter 18. We think of it primarily as starting with, uh, with chapter 20 and the Ten Commandments, but there have been some commandments already given by God to Moses prior to that time, a, a, a few chapters before. But it continues uh, through the book of, of Numbers, and then many of them are repeated again in summary to the second generation of the Israelite people uh, in, uh, in, in the book of Deuteronomy. Over and over again, there are warnings to those who do not keep every commandment that God gives. Some of them have their own specific sentence that is built in. Those who blaspheme God are to be taken out on the uh, uh, testimony of witnesses and stoned by the congregation. Those who disobey their parents or revile their parents, don't show proper obedience or, or, or respect to their parents. And that's not just a, a sassy word now and then. That's serious rebellion. Uh, but nevertheless, they also are to be stoned. There are one or two instances where burning is the method of execution. There are several other uh, sins about which it is said they are to be cut off from the assembly of the people, whether that means exiled, uh, expelled out into the desert by themselves or cut off by being put to death is not explicit. 
uh, in, the, in the text. But, but they are all severe, dire consequences to their sins. If breaking God's law under the law of Moses would bring about death and exile, then how much more are those who despise the sacrifice of Christ worthy of? If violating the commandment that is temporary in nature and not adequate to bring about eternal salvation, as the Hebrew writer has already proved in previous chapters, if those things, or, or will prove rather in subsequent chapters, uh, if, 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 if breaking that kind of law is such a serious matter in the eyes of God, what about breaking the law that pertains to an eternal sacrifice, an eternal gift, an eternal reward in heaven? How does one neglect this salvation? The warning that we have is to prevent us from drifting away, to prevent us from being guilty of neglect. If you look carefully at the book of Hebrews, there are at least four things that we see them being chastened for by the writer, which, which lead up to the state that they're in of being on the verge of falling away from their faith. First of all, we, we neglect our salvation when we fail to assemble together uh, as a Christian body in worship and in encouragement of each other. Hebrews 10 verse 25 is often quoted to establish the importance of the Sunday morning assembly uh, or of some assembly or all the assemblies, whatever. But let's read it again in its context. Beginning in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, having boldness, enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, that is, we are now in the Christian era. We are members of the church of Jesus Christ. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We are Christians. We have been converted by obedience to the gospel of Christ. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Let's have fellowship together in many ways, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. One reason why their faith is weak is because some of them have developed the habit of absenting themselves from Christian fellowship. They're staying away. How often, how, how long this has been a practice, whether they are attending any service at any time or only occasionally, we simply do not know. But the failure to assemble together to worship God and encourage each other is a contributing thing to their spiritual condition. We neglect our salvation when we don't come together as God intended. We are not intended to be solitary, isolated Christians. I know I'm taking it out of context, and I want you to be fully aware of, of that, but in, in uh, Genesis chapter 1, God looked upon the various things of salvation, and uh, of uh, creation, I should say, and time after time said, it is good. But then for the first time, after day 6, he saw, it is not good that man should be alone. That's talking about man's life on this earth, that he needed a companion. I understand that. But it's a general truism, a general spiritual principle. It is not good for man to be alone. When Jesus sent the disciples out to preach the gospel, he sent them two by two, 
not by themselves. When Paul went to, uh, uh, to make his first missionary journey, he went as a part of a pair. Barnabas and Saul went together. When they could no longer work together cooperatively, he took Silas. Barnabas took John Mark. It is not intended for us to be Christians in isolation. For the simple matter that it simply doesn't work very well. We will not have the encouragement, the support, the need, the occasional criticism and correction that we need. When someone is overtaken in a sin, Galatians 6 verse 1 says, You who are spiritual, go to him and correct him humbly, knowing that you yourself might need that same action at a later time. Bear one another's burdens while still trying to bear as much of your own as you possibly can. We need help. Many preachers complain about the glass house that some preachers and elders and other leaders of congregations live in. They, criticize, they say there's a double standard. I can't do some things that other people in the congregation can do. Mark, I don't know about you, but I welcome that. I need all the help to get to heaven that I can get. And if I've got 200 or 300 brethren watching me and telling me exactly when I make a mistake, or even when they may be thinking I'm making a mistake, good for them. We need each other. We need our encouragements. We need our compliments. We need our prayers. We also need constructive, loving criticism. And so when we fail to take advantage of the fellowship that is available to us, and that's not just on one Sunday morning service a week, by the way, but in many other occasions and opportunities as well. When we fail to take advantage of that, we are in danger of neglecting our salvation. Very quickly, we neglect it when we cease hearing God's Word. The passage starts with the, with the warning. We must give the more earnest attention or heed to the things we have heard. He's talking about the Gospel. Now, they're not doing that. Uh, in chapter 5, beginning in verse 11, he says, I'd like to say more about this subject, the high priesthood of Jesus, but it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. I appreciated the article on the front page of your bulletin this morning that encouraged you to be daily Bible readers. It's not too late to start. And if it was November the 30th, I'd still say it's not too late to start uh, for this year. You might not read the whole Bible in one month, but you can read a lot of it uh, if you dedicate yourself to it. But right now you have a good chance if you haven't already started to commit yourself to be a daily Bible reader. I've had a plan uh, that, that leads me through the New Testament twice and the Old Testament once in more or less chronological order uh, every year. And I've followed that plan since 1978 with only two or three exceptions. Uh, I find it helpful. I use a different translation every year. Now, I go back after four or five years and read, uh, read one I've read before, but, uh, but I'll change translations to help me be more familiar with what's coming out, whether good or bad. Now, that's not the way I do my Bible study and prepare my lessons, uh, but to be to familiarize myself with what might be available might prove to be helpful or might need to be warned against. Uh, I use that way to, uh, uh, to preview uh, and, and to get familiar with those translations and also to give me new insights, new thoughts about how a certain passage might, uh, might be translated or what it might uh, in fact mean. Uh, be a daily Bible reader. 
Speak to God. Let Him speak to you. Pray and read your Bible every day. The Hebrews were no longer doing that, not only not every day, but perhaps not even at all. Not just reading their Bible, but, but talking with others, listening to the gospel preaching, uh, and consulting the leaders of the church and inspired prophets who came. They were absenting themselves from all of those opportunities, and as a result, their salvation was being neglected. We neglect it when we fail to do the good works that God has designed for us to do. We've already cited Ephesians chapter 2, verses, verse 10, where it says God created those works that we might walk in them. Uh, they're there for us to do. Notice chapter 13 of Hebrews, verse 15, uh, 15 and 16. Therefore by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name, worship through prayer and song and other ways. But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. When we are not worshiping God regularly, giving praise to his name in the presence of others, when we are not visiting the sick, helping the poor and the needy, feeding those who are hungry, visiting those who are imprisoned, when we are failing to do all of those things, we are failing to serve Christ as he intended and taught for us to do. We are neglecting our salvation. Therefore, let us give earnest attention. We've already talked about our need to read God's Word, study God's Word, know God's Word. But here, let's look at another sense or, of interpretation of this phrase, earnest attention. He is simply saying, be diligent. Make an effort at it. Christianity is not a part-time hobby. It is not something that only requires a small part of our attention or of, of our being. It is our life. It is our vocation. Christians are, Christianity is not what we do. It's what we are. And so it is deserving of our full-time attention, of our total devotion. The phrase total commitment was once very popular and then it became misused and has become unpopular and yet there is a sense in which it is very expressive of, of our relationship with God. We are compelled by the love of Christ, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If we are so compelled, then it is something that is important to us all of the time. Again, we'll spend more attention looking at related thoughts of that at 1 o'clock. We have a great salvation. Perhaps there are those in this audience who have not yet received that salvation. You believe that Jesus is God's Son. You believe the Bible is God's Word and it's inspired of Him. But for some reason, you have not chosen to commit yourself to be a follower of, of Christ and a, and a child of God. If you have faith in Christ, if you are willing and ready to repent of your sins and turn from them, we offer you the opportunity to confess His name and to be baptized in His name for the remission of your sins this very morning. If you are a New Testament Christian and yet you know that you've not walked straight and, and, and right in His path, that you, there are sins that have hindered you in your relationship with God and perhaps in your relationship with other Christians, you will take the opportunity to confess your sins today to ask God's forgiveness and your brothers and sisters' forgiveness, you can be assured of, of the granting of that request of the promise that God will forgive you of your sins. One of my favorite passages is 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, which begins negatively, but ends very positively. If anyone says he has no sin, he's a liar. The truth is not in him. If we confess our sins, God is faithful to forgive them 
and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God is faithful. God will forgive if you will obey. Won't you come as we stand as we stand?